Okay, well, amen. Thank you, Sean, as always, and thank all of you for being here tonight with us. Uh, we will be getting back into our study of Exodus tonight. We'll be in Exodus 29, and we've actually been a few weeks. Uh, last week was potluck, so we didn't have a night service. The week before that, Lenny preached on Psalm 77 to remember. Uh, so it was actually three weeks ago when Pastor preached Exodus 28 to us. Um, I'm just going to read the first verse to kind of remind you what he was talking about. Exodus 28.1 says, Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest Aaron and his sons. I actually just read that, sorry, out of my Bible. And so what popped up there was, uh, yeah, sorry. And his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So, in other words, if I'm not going to re-preach the whole sermon, but it was about what the priests had to wear to come into uh, God's presence, and Pastor had to quote, the holiness, glory, and beauty of his apparel, the priests, what they wore, associated him with God's sacred space. So I think we all agree with that. I don't think anybody would have a problem with saying, you're going into God's presence, dress like it, okay? Act like it, look like it. So we're going to build off of that today. Um, actually, the clothing is mentioned again, but in a bigger picture. Uh, so we're going to read the first nine verses of chapter 29, if you want to stand in honor of reading God's word. Um, Exodus 29, verses 1 through 9. God says, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with a skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. You may be seated. Okay, so we saw a mention of the items that Pastor preached on in chapter 28. We see the ephod, we see the breastpiece, we see the skillfully woven band, a lot of things that he talked about last week. Um, but like I said, there's a lot more uh, that God wanted them to do. So my focus today, as we just look at these first nine verses, is the beginning of the first verse. It says, now this is what you shall do to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Now, not really a word we use all that often today, but to consecrate means to make or declare to be sacred. Now, I think we'd all agree that really only God can consecrate something. I don't get to do some special ceremony to consecrate my left shoe. It doesn't work that way. I don't get to pick what's holy, what's sacred. God does. And yet how interesting that when God picks what he decides to make holy or to consecrate, he says, here's what I want you to do so that it will be consecrated before me. God's the one who determines it consecrated, but he tells us what we need to do to kind of qualify for that, let's say. 
uh, reminds me of Joshua 3, 5, uh, when God was about to bring the people into the promised land. And Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua didn't mean that. He didn't mean go home and decide what you need to do so that you can be consecrated, so that you can be holy, so that God told them. God told them what he wanted them to do, and, and Joshua was saying, okay, now go home and do it. I know a lot of you weren't even here eight years ago, and I can't believe it was eight years ago. But eight years ago, I preached a sermon on this verse right here, and it was called Prepare to be Amazed. And the idea behind the phrase, because you know I love my titles, was that God amazes us, but when we hear prepare to be amazed, we think it means sit back and enjoy the show. Fireworks or a circus or a, a magician. That Prepare just means like strap yourself in, here we go. Not for God. When God says prepare to be amazed, he's like, oh yeah, I'll be the amazing one, but here's what I want you to do to prepare. So I hope there's a statue of limitations on uh, titles, and if not, I'm stealing my own. But I will be doing another twist on that tonight because it's how God spoke to my heart. Tonight's title is Prepare to be Consecrated. Once again, not that you're going to consecrate yourself, but if God told the... Uh, Aaron and his sons, what he wanted in order for him to deem them consecrated, and they really are just preparing right now. These things don't happen to Leviticus 8. It's going to be a while in the story before we actually see these things be played out, but God says, that's okay. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how you can prepare so that I will deem you as sacred, as holy, as consecrated before me. And while we're obviously not going to take all these things literally tonight... That should be our desire as well. That while technically we are consecrated, we are set apart, we are holy, and yet we know that God has requirements for us. God has things that he wants us to be doing and striving to do and to stop do. So that when we're in his presence, uh, we are striving to live up to the title that he gives us. So I hope that made sense, but we're going to dive in, and thankfully the Holy Spirit, like Sean said, don't listen to me, listen to God. Here we go. Lord, I do thank you, and no one here is going to know uh, how long it took me to get to what I'm going to share tonight. Only you and I do, but that's okay. This is where you got me, and I thank you for that, and I thank you for how it's spoken to my heart, and how you've given me the honor of speaking it to everyone else. And I do ask, Lord, that you do that, that no one here, I kind of want them to hear my voice, because I want them to know that I'm the one that you gave this message to that you spoke to my heart lord we do want to edify one another with our voices but you know what we mean um, if somebody hears something not contrary to what i'm saying by any stretch but just another wrinkle another perspective another blessing more than thank you thank you that we all are blessed by your word not by what's preached by the preacher but by the power that we know that's in it so lord you recorded these things and that must mean that they're for your children until your son comes back. Lord, none of your word had an expiration date, uh, regardless of, of when it took place or who you were speaking to, and I thank you for the confidence I have in knowing that. So I look forward to how you're going to speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you notice at the end, it's, and a few times actually, it said, this is how you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So let's be clear. What we just read was not for all the Israelites. It wasn't even for all the priests. It was very unique to Aaron and his sons and his line, that this is what they were supposed to prepare for. 
Okay, all we're going to do is make spiritual applications for things that we're not going to actually do, but that God didn't have to record. And if God recorded them, I fully believe it's that we can be blessed by it. And that's what I'm going to share with you tonight, how he spoke to me, and maybe later uh, you can tell me how it speaks to you. But let's start in verse 1. In verse 1, it says, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish. You don't have to be in church very long at all to know why they need animals. Okay, it wasn't to start a petting zoo. Okay, we know that these animals, the whole intention was to kill them, to sacrifice them. We understand that. We understand why. That without the shedding of blood, is, there's no remission of sins. We get that. And I'll admit at first, as I'm going through, I'm like, okay, so should my first point be prepare to sacrifice? I mean, we are called to be a living sacrifice, right? I'm usually good at these curveball connections. But I just didn't feel like that's what this was saying. To be honest, the priests here aren't sacrificing. They're performing the sacrifice, but they're not sacrificing. I have no reason to think these were their bulls or their rams, or that anything personal from them, they were sacrificing to give to God. I, I have no reason to think that. All right, Lord, then where do you want me to go? Because you gave me chapter 29. And I'm reading, and I'm meditating, and thankfully I'm reading past verse 9. Next week we're going to do the rest of the chapter, and next week is where we actually see why they're going to need all the things we see today. And oh my goodness, I know Pastor has mentioned this before, but I needed to be reminded these were up close and personal sacrifices. We're going to see next week that they didn't just kill these animals. They had to have their hand on the animal's head or their hand on the animal's horn or they had to smear some of the blood on body pieces. I mean, this was way more than a ticket into the temple. Kill the animal, okay, can we come in now? It was very up close and personal. So as I tried to personalize that to myself, okay, they're holding the head. They're holding. They're smearing. God obviously wants them to have a connection with this. And the connection, I think, is a pretty obvious one. This should be you. You know why this animal's dying? Because you're not worthy to come into my presence. Because you're a sinner. Because you are not holy enough, sacred enough, consecrated enough to earn my presence. Something has to die in order for you to do so. Should be you we'll make it an animal instead. Now, we know that we're not going to kill an animal. We know that for us, Hebrews 9, 12, that Christ entered once for all into all the holy places, not by the means of bloods of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So I don't need to put my hand on the horn of an animal. We'll talk more about that next week. But as I put myself in the position of those priests who did have to put the hand and did have to smear the blood I started thinking, okay, they're not so much sacrificing, but man, they must really be meditating. And then I'm like, ooh, that's, that's still not the best word, because meditation can go in so many different ways. To be honest, they should be flooded with a sense of conviction. How could they not be? As they're watching this thing, this innocent animal die, this blood getting spread, all so that they can come into the presence of a holy God because they aren't, to my heart, what it spoke is the first way to prepare to be consecrated is to prepare for conviction. I know pastor says this a lot, and I, I don't know ultimately if there's 
We can try. That's all I'm going to say. We walk into this place so easily. And I know it's come boldly before the throne of grace. I know that we're, by, by Christ, we have been set free. I know all of that. But man, when's the last time we stopped and realized just how unworthy we are? When's the last time we just sat and stopped and thought, I don't deserve this. I deserve that. I don't deserve what Christ did for me. I, I deserve, I'm the one who deserves death. And I don't know, like I know we want to think that, and I know deep down it's there. I just think sometimes it's in the back of the head instead of the front of the head. And I think the purpose of them holding on to that animal and seeing that blood spill was to get it to the front of the head. Right? I'm reminded of James 1, 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. I don't think I'm taking it out of context, but obviously it's not referring to killing an animal. I get it. But, oh my goodness, like, do we ever just stop? I mean, that's what communion's for, right? To just stop. Stop and remember what Christ did for you, why he did it for you. How are we not more convicted? How are we, I don't want to say so comfortable in our sin, that that's a relative statement, but relatively speaking, we are too comfortable in our sin. Everyone has to say that. Everyone has to say that. And I do think that we, as we prepare to be consecrated, God does the consecration, but as we prepare so that we can be in a place for him to say, well done, kid. That's what I want from you. Conviction's got to be a part of it. If you know God is here and you know you are here, you can't be okay with that. It has to bother you. It has to make you want to get better. I have to word it that way because of the verse we're about to read. When I say it has to bother you, maybe some of you can relate to me, it bothers us the wrong way. One of the reasons we don't let ourselves get so convicted is because when we do, it's a train wreck. You don't even want to get out of bed because you realize how horrible you are. And that's not what God wants for you either. First Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. We know the Corinthians were a train wreck, but look at what Paul says. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That's what I mean for prepare for conviction. Not, not prepare to get your knuckles wrapped. Not prepare to get your feet stomped on. Yeah, it hurts, but guess what? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Prepare for conviction, at least the way God spoke to my heart, is take a moment. It is meditate, but not meditate like, God is so good to me. He is. We should meditate on that. And not meditate on whatsoever things are true and noble. Of course we should. But as I relate to that priest having to hold that animal, not just kill it, but hold on to it as it's being killed and smear that blood, how could they not have been reminded how unworthy they are? How would they be able to just walk away like James says and see it but then forget it? Oh, no. Don't forget it. But don't let it crush you either. Because godly grief produces repentance. That's the ultimate goal. I'd like to say prepare for repentance. But you can't prepare for repentance if you don't prepare for conviction. You understand? you got to let God speak to your heart first. got to have those moments of meditation of, Lord, what are you speaking to my heart? Lord, what area of my life 
Am I refusing to give to you, or do I not realize that something? But if we know we're not worthy, I'll say every time we step in here, out there, of course, also, but every time we step in here, there should be an expectation, getting a little, little ahead of myself, but an expectation, Lord, show me what I could be doing better. It's not a bad thing. It's not. We make it a bad thing. We beat ourselves up. I'm never going to be good enough. Yeah, you're right. You're never going to be good enough. The priest was never going to be good enough. God's taken care of that. He's offered a sacrifice that takes care of the fact that you're never going to be good enough. But what's your response to that? Right? How can I prepare for conviction? I just wrote down, well, first I've got to examine myself. I've got to be willing to look and let God speak to my heart and look at my life and then compare it to Scripture. I'll say we've been focusing on doctrine the last two weeks, but truth is we focus on it all the time. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. The importance of knowing what the Bible says. In fact, we spoke about it in the, the little kids. I had the little kids today. And we played a little game where they had to come up with one thing that was true about them and one thing that was a lie, and we'd see if we could figure out which was which. And the point was to tell them that the world is saying so many lies and people are falling for it because they think it's true. And the goal was to say, that's why you got to know God's word. If you know God's word, you'll know the lie from the truth. And the same thing in our own life. When we examine ourselves and then compare it to the light of Scripture, I preached it two weeks ago. If you believe in the power of Scripture, you got to believe that God will say, Oh, you see that? You see that? I think we just found our next thing to work on. And that was my third point to just respond, repent. It's okay. Don't beat yourself up over it. But to me, I don't know, again, I'm not going to say that that's explicitly what Exodus 29 was. Explicitly, it was explaining to them that they better have those animals because they're going to have to kill them soon. But applicationally, what they're going to do besides kill them, that's how it spoke to my heart. That we need to internalize it, that we need to prepare for conviction, but that in preparing for that conviction, knowing that when we allow God to convict our heart and we submit to his will and we respond correctly, we end up growing from the process. And by growing in the process, it doesn't make you more saved. But if I can just use the phrase, it makes you not more consecrated, but more set apart, more sanctified. Maybe that's the better word. Further along in your journey of who God has called you to be, I would argue that based on Exodus 29, let's start with conviction. Let's start with God speaking to our heart, responding to that, and then a beautiful segue into the next verse. I didn't see it for the first couple of weeks, but when God revealed it to me, I thought it was beautiful. Verse 2, after verse 1 says, take one bowl of the herd and two rams without blemish. Verse 2 says, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. Don't actually answer. These are rhetorical questions. But what were the bull and the rams for? Conviction. Yeah, sacrifice. Oh, Lord, I can't. I'm not worthy to come into your prayer. What's the bread for? Please don't tell me they were hungry. If you don't know by now, I'm sorry. I just, part of me wants to say God must have a little Italian in him. But I'm sure you'd say some Jamaican and someone else would say some Greek. And man, God likes food. Like, every time we turn around, 
couple chapters ago, chapter 25, we were talking about how the temple better have a table of showbread in it that would always have bread on it so that the priest come in, eat the bread, and then a week later, get rid of what was there, replace it. There was always to be bread there. And then sooner or later, if Jesus doesn't come back first, we'll get to the feasts. Might take us a while to get there, but isn't that amazing? Israel was forced to have feasts. You do understand that feasts require food, yes? And then, of course, there's Passover, which we now call communion. I, I was up here. We had communion last week, and obviously this sermon's on my heart. And I'm like, man, yeah, you know, I, I can relate to this. Every time we turn around, God's saying, yeah, have some food with that. All right, Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. It really is amazing when you think about it. Not how often. God's not a foodie. We know that. But man, it seems like every opportunity he has, he's turning around and saying, you know something? Bring some food with you. And we know what that means. We know it means that, listen, I don't just want to spend a second with you, right? I want to fellowship with you. So um, don't, don't get there yet. Yeah, that's a couple slides down. But the point is, we know that the catechism says that the purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We enjoy him by having fellowship. 1 John 1, 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thought. I don't care how many times I get up here and say it. It still amazes me. God wants to fellowship with me. I'm just thankful he tolerates me. I'm thankful he puts up with me. And he's saying, no, no, John, bring some bread. No, no, stay a while. I want to dine with you. I want to spend time with you. So the second thing to prepare, and again, I feel like it, it connects beautifully. Yes, prepare to be convicted or prepare for conviction, but not so you can get beat up and leave here all bloodied and bruised, but that through that conviction and through that repentance, you have a better relationship with a God who wants to fellowship with you. I love that. It's a, I love that I was dreading preaching Exodus 29. I'm just being honest. I had no idea where I was going to go with it. And now I'm getting chills with the thought of the sacrifice and the bread. Oh, yeah, bring them both. That's so beautiful. Yeah, you're not good enough to be in my presence, but you know something? My son died for you, so when you come, bring some bread so we can spend some time together. What a beautiful, beautiful thought. So, again, what are some ways we can prepare for fellowship? Time. Right? Can we be honest? You guys are here on a Sunday night, so you already get bonus points when it comes to time. Let's be honest. But we got to spend time with them. We've got to be in his word. We've got to be praying. Consciously, at set-aside times, yes, and then also pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all things. It doesn't mean you're really praying every second of the day or that you're rejoicing every second of the day or that you're giving thanks every second of the day, but you're always ready to. That at any moment when God lays a thought on your mind or maybe even a trial, a problem, you go run into daddy. He gets your time. You cannot fellowship with him because you show up here once a week or even twice a week because morning and night. We can't do it. We would literally have to all move in here if we wanted to say, oh, well, I've, my fellowship is at church. Great. Then let's just all live here because otherwise you've got a Monday to Saturday where you might not see me, but I sure hope you're spending time with him. 
He needs our time. Uh, but we also have to check our intentions. I say our intentions. I hope I don't mean our intentions. But we know that Isaiah 29, 13 says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Even today, Jews probably give God more time than I do as far as structurally making sure they do what they have to do when they have to do it, but their intention is to follow some moral man code. Our intention to spend time with God isn't that we check enough boxes to say, okay, this should be sufficient. No, we should want to. We should want to spend time with our Lord and Savior and our Creator because we know that that's what makes us complete, that that's where the answers to... I'm, I'm trying to think of the song off the top of my head, but... Where else can we go? You, where else can we go? You alone have the word, something like that, right? Okay, Sean can sing it for you later. But Peter said, where else do you want me to go? Well, yeah, we have to give him time, but we also have to have the intention of what that time is supposed to produce, which is why the third thing I thought was expectations. Now, it really spoke to my heart, to be honest. I feel like I give God time daily. And I, I know I have the right intention. I promise you I don't wake up in the morning and say, fine, I'll read my Bible. But sometimes it, it, it might come across that way. I'm glad I did it, but it doesn't necessarily have. We should have an expectation when we fellowship with God that something beautiful and positive and potentially life-changing is going to come from it. Yesterday, I, I'm not exactly a social butterfly, but I had two social events yesterday. One was a birthday party that, to be all honest, I had no expectations. I enjoyed people's company. I enjoyed the food. I had a good time. And then the other one was a meeting that I'd scheduled to have with a Christian brother. Nothing deep, nothing theological, but at the same time, I did kind of have expectations for that fellowship. I wanted some growth to occur there. I wanted the relationship to be strengthened. I think we can all relate to that. We know what it's like to hang out with people, and we know what it's like to have purposeful fellowship. That's what we should be doing, even right now. In Exodus 29, <laughs> do you have the expectation that God's going to speak to your heart? I said it two weeks ago. Where else are you going to read Exodus 29? <laughs> this might be the only time you ever hear it, but if this is the only time you ever hear it, are you expecting God to speak to you through it? Or are you thinking, oh, how much further till Judges? I like that book. I'm, I don't know how much further. But you better believe that we're going to keep preaching God's word with the expectation that the more time we spend with him, with the intention and the expectation of growing from him, that's what it means to me to prepare for fellowship, to come in with that expectation that I'm going to give him time, and I'm going to do it with the right intention, and I'm going to hold him to every promise he has and expect these things to have the positive impact and power in my life that it says it does. All right, we're doing good. So we prepare for conviction, that's what the sacrifice said to me. And we prepare for fellowship, that's what the bread said to me. So now let's go to verse 4. It says, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Again, we understand what that means. They weren't taking a shower. It wasn't for hygiene reasons. It was ceremonial, just like Pastor said, that the way you dress should represent that you're coming into God's sacred space. You shouldn't show up dirty. We get that, okay? We understand what it means to be clean, but at the same time, what does it mean to us? 
Okay, technically we're already clean, right? The blood of Christ has cleansed us. And yet, we do know that there are verses out there, like 1 John 1.9, that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm saying, all right, Lord, I'm just trusting. You got me through the first two points. <laughs> What's this next one going to be? And again, I'm not so good with writing down where I find these things, so I don't know what uh, commentary it was, but God spoke to me through whichever one it was that said, notice that he didn't tell Aaron and his sons to clean themselves. They could have. They could have went up and washed their hands. They could have went up and washed their face. They could have said, okay, I'm clean. No, it said, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. They had to sit there and be washed by other people. So as I meditated on that thought, I realized, you know something? I am big time into self-cleaning. When something's going on between me and God, guess where I keep it? Between me and God. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a wrong thing. But as I read this and as I think that God, as I notice how God said, not clean yourself, but someone else needs to clean you, I was reminded of James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I know some people think that healing means physical. Of course, God can physically heal you. But we as a church don't believe that just because I tell Sue all my sins, now all of a sudden my blood sugar goes down. Like, that isn't the way it works. Healed on the much bigger scale is spiritual, and that just fits so much better. You want to be spiritually healed as you're preparing to be consecrated. You want to be more and more who God wants you to be. I'm going to say, well, then prepare for confession. In my opinion, no, we don't air all our dirty laundry. For some reason, we feel like we always have to put that little addendum in there. That's not the point. Just follow the flow of what God's saying here. Meditate on how you're so not worthy to come into my presence. That should bring conviction on you, but conviction that produces godly repentance that actually draws you closer to me so that we can be more in fellowship with each other. Beautiful thought. But you do see I'm only pointing in two places, right? Don't you ever think that God wants a relationship with you that is not ultimately going to bless those around you, especially brothers and sisters in the body. So if confessing our sins, and I'm going to put that a little bit in quotes because God can speak to your heart what that is. But if being open and honest about something can maybe help someone else who's struggling with it, or maybe can help you because you've been battling it and you think no one's ever going to understand, but you're open and honest about it. And next thing you know, you're surrounded by, by brothers and sisters. The first step's the hardest one, but I see Darlene nodding her head, so I, I, I got to believe there's other people in here. Yeah, you know, you're right. It's hard. It is. But if we want to be more and more prepared to be consecrated, more and more to be who God called us to be and the position he called us to be, the person he called us to be, then yeah, it can't just be that you're convicted. Okay, Lord, now we have fellowship. That's what we read in 1 John 1, 3. They said, we want to fellowship with you the way we fellowship with the Father. I, I don't want to spend too much time on that because I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not trying to twist anyone's arm. What's the worst thing you ever did? No, I actually want you to be a little spiritually selfish here. To understand that one of the best things you might do in your life is maybe 
get an elder or a Christian brother or sister. Listen, we, can we talk? I, I could really use some help in something. Now. I can't do this alone. Whatever it might be, I'm not going to give you a bunch of hypotheticals, but I just want you to see that that can be a good thing. Not a, oh boy, I got to confess, you know, what's the whole, are you sorry because you did it or sorry because you got caught? No. This, this isn't about fine, I'll confess. It's cleansing yourself. Isn't that, we were washing, right? But they weren't washing. Someone else was coming along. And washing. I just think it's a beautiful thought, but I totally understand if you've got a weird look on your face saying, John, all they did was get washed. I get it. But that's how God spoke to my heart, and you can later on tell me how he speaks to yours. So as we follow the flow, we get convicted. That conviction leads to repentance, which is why he wants us to bring the bread, because he wants to have fellowship with us. But he doesn't want it to be a one-way relationship. He wants that to then enhance and edify the body which can happen as we're allowing others to wash us and others to be a part of our sanctification. Then we get to verses 5 and 6. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on his turban. This is what Pastor was talking about. Again, let's get that quote up there. The holiness, glory, and beauty of his apparel associated him with God's sacred space. I already said at the beginning, that makes total sense. We all agree you're going into God's presence. You better look good. But now let's take that truth and realize where God put it. Isn't it so beautiful that that might have been verse 28 one, but it wasn't verse 29 one. He didn't say, and this is what you'll do to consecrate yourself. Put on these beautiful clothes so you look good in front of me. No. You know something? I want to see some conviction. I want to see some conviction that leads to repentance so that we can fellowship together. And I want to see that fellowship grow into... Do you understand? Like, it makes so much sense to me that God says, oh yeah, those clothes? Oh, don't put them on right away. You put them on when you're ready to put them on. Uh, It makes me think of how often the Bible does talk about put off this and then put on this, right? Right? Not just, not just put it on. You put this off so that you can put this on, right? Um, Colossians 3, 12 to 14, we're told to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Yes, please let me sarcastically say, but I do mean it. I almost wish I did just have to put on an ephod, and God would be happy. Or a clergy collar. Or a tie every time I preach. I'm sorry, that would be the easy way out if God just said, make sure you look good. When God says, make sure you look good, yeah, the clothes, what's the, the clothes represent the man or whatever the phrase is, that's what we should be striving for. It isn't really put on all these jewels and everything, but put on all of these things to represent who you're striving to be in my presence. Again, I'm going to read them. What he really wants us to put on is compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, And above all, love. Sorry, I just want to see who's wearing that already. It's not easy, my friends. 
I'm sorry. I, again, it took a while to get me here. If you think I just whipped these sermons up, you're nuts. But I meditated, and I prayed, and I said, Lord, what do you want me to take from putting on these clothes, putting on these? And it's that, it's something we constantly have to strive to do. So I just said we should prepare for growth. And I think part of why I said that is because I was still kind of in the mindset of two weeks ago when I was talking about are you not ashamed of the power of the gospel? We're so good at saying how the gospel tears down strongholds and gives victory and we, we, we promote all these things and yet we have strongholds that aren't torn down and things that we never have victory over. And you can say it. You can quote-unquote wear it, but can you? You could say, you know, the emperor's new clothes. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but the emperor said he was wearing it. And finally someone came along and said, I don't see any clothes. There is no way God looked at them and said, yep, you have all your jewels in the right place. Come on in. No. God expected them through conviction, through fellowship, through confession, to be growing in their walk, to be growing in their faith, to be growing in their love for him, then put the clothes on. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but I just love where it lands in the order of things. Yes, you wear this. You should be wearing this in my presence. But if you're wearing that, that means you're doing this, this, and this. That's how it spoke to my heart. So again, like I said two weeks ago, none of us are perfect. Okay? But the fact that we're not perfect doesn't mean that God's word isn't powerful enough. It means we don't grow enough in it. And that's what we should be prepared for. Can we look back? Hmm. All right, let's see if I can say this correctly. I always want to look back on my life and see that I've grown as a Christian. Can I look back one year and say that? To be honest, I'm not sure. I don't know. With everything that's been going on, I don't know. But can I look back 20 years? Yeah. You understand? Like, it's not going to be a constant linear straight up, but oh my goodness, on the journey. If you've been preaching how great God is, but you're still no better at this and no more at this and no, then where's the power? Where's the growth? Where's the, I'm in God's presence. I'm consecrated. It doesn't just mean I put something on. It means I live a life to show that what I'm putting on means something. I'm going to leave it at that because I feel like I'm tripping over my words. But please know, I wrote down, Pastor would agree that we, because he preached it last week, we need to put as much effort into the way we live our lives as the clothes that we wear. Okay, I guarantee you Exodus 28 was not about wear these clothes and you're in. No. It was wear these clothes because I'm worthy of that and a person who wears those clothes should be doing all of these things as well. All right, so we have prepare for conviction, prepare for fellowship, prepare for confession, prepare for growth. One more. Verse 7, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Somewhat dangerous word, unfortunately. Some people like to abuse that word anoint and act like it's some mystical, magical thing that comes over you. When the Bible talks about anointing, it pretty much means one of two things. Okay, sometimes it really is physical. It, it's medicinal, if that's the right way to say it. it. It's actually in the definition that there are times, like in James 14, when it says, are any of you sick? Call over the elders, have them pray over you, and anoint them in oil, with oil in the name of the Lord. That word anoint actually has a medicinal root. 
to it. It actually means, now the focus is on the name of the Lord. You know, that as you're doing all of these things, make sure you're doing it in God's. But anoint can mean that. But other than that, we know that it means it's just a symbolic sign that you have the favor of God on you. That when God calls you his anointed one, it means, yes, you are one of mine. Which again, makes so much sense to me why anointing comes at end and not at the beginning. Are we all God's anointed? Assuming everyone here is saved. Yes. If you have the spirit of God in you, then most certainly, we know from John 2, 19 and 20, 19 says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. That's not referring to the smart Christians. That's referring to Christians. If we have the Holy Spirit residing in us, then we are already anointed. We are already in God's favor. But when we look at the passage, and we realize that the anointing comes at the end, it could have easily come at the beginning. You're one of my priests. Let me anoint you. Okay, now go do all these things. That's not how God chose to do it. He said, no, 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 no. Do this, do this, do this. You know something? It looks like you're ready. Let's pour. So again, how does that speak to my head? Prepare to be approved. And all I mean by that is how many, again, my heart breaks. How many people out there are striving so hard to please whatever God they serve in the hopes that he's looking, in the hopes that it's enough, in the hopes that they can... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, God says do this, 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 but like we said at the beginning, in the end, you're consecrated. You're anointed. All this is is kind of that, that final touch, that well done, good and faithful servant. All right. Come on in. And that's what I want for my life. It says, um, we all know what it's like to prepare for something and not get it, right? Think about it. The test you prepared for and still failed. The job interview you prepared for and didn't get the job. We know what it's like. Shouldn't God of all people be the one that we're most worried? Oh, I hope he picks me. I hope he picks me. Oh, my goodness. I hope I was good enough. Trust me, kid. <laughs> You're not good enough. And don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, because this sacrifice, yes, it's supposed to convict you, but it's also supposed to encourage you that I will still take you into my presence. And not just that I won't kill you for it, I want to fellowship with you. And I don't just want to fellowship with you, but I want you to fellowship with the body. And you know something, when you're fellowshiping with the body, I want you to grow. Like, everything God does is in our favor. Everything. All the way up until the end with him pouring that anointing oil, pretty much putting that final touch on and saying, you are my child. I consecrate you. So there are two more verses in honor of God's word. I will read them, but I don't really have um, comments on them. It says, then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever pastor preached on that phrase thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons okay that ends our passage but I'll tell you right now next week Lord willing verses 10 through 46 we're going to find out why they needed the bull and the two rams and the bread and the 
garments, and we're, we're going to see it all implemented. And I'm thankful for that, because why would God tell you to do all these things to prepare for something unless we were preparing for something, right? He doesn't want us spinning our wheels. He's saying, do all of these things so that you can, dot, 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 to be continued. See you next week. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for every brother and sister in here, and I pray that that's true. Lord, I don't have a dining room table big enough for all of these people, but thank you that it's what it feels like, that we are just coming into your presence as brothers and sisters. And yeah, I did all the talking, but oh, again, I, I pray your spirit did all the talking. Lord, that we heard from you, and whether it be a more sensitive conviction to what your spirit's trying to tell us. We know that we can grieve the spirit. We know that we can quench the spirit. So I pray that, that we be more sensitive, that we allow you to convict us so that it can produce godly repentance. And then thank you that when we're down there in that humble mode, you say, oh, come fellowship with me. Lord, thank you that you say to bring the bread with the bowl. Oh, no, we so don't deserve it. But Lord, thank you eternally for it. Thank you that I have brothers and sisters that I can confess my weaknesses and my shortcomings and my difficulties with and that we can edify one another and that iron can sharpen iron. Lord, maybe that's not why you had someone else wash them, but it's how you spoke to my heart. Thank you for the growth that we can only get through your spirit who helps us and teaches us and reminds us Oh, and thank you for the promise of approval, Lord, that we're not doing these things hoping we find your favor, but that we've already found your favor, and you just want us to do it as good, willing, and able servants so that uh, we know that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And Lord, that's what we're doing right here in the first nine verses of Exodus 29. We are diligently seeking you, and I thank you for how you spoke to my heart and look forward to hearing and seeing how you use this in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, sir. appreciate that, definitely. And I, I don't say that flippantly. I sit there and I think about the actual cleansing and how it's you know, somebody came along and washed the priests. It wasn't the priests washing themselves. Ultimately, we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Nothing that we do does the cleansing. Um, it's by faith, but it's by faith that, you know, obviously God first gave us by opening up our heart to him and receiving his, you know, his word. So when we look at that, we ask in the same vein that he would take our lives and let it be consecrated. So I ask that you stand and we will sing this song.